Money. You can't really get through life without it. Some people use it to define success. Others use it to attain freedom. Whatever your motivation, you need to know how to earn it, how to use it, and how to grow it. At Tilly Money, our aim is to build the financial strength of women. And this season, we're taking it to the next level by empowering you with practical wealth building tips and strategies to help you become financially independent. From money to beauty to health stories, we're also going to be talking to women about the inspirational journeys they have taken to motivate you on your path towards success in all areas of your life. This is Tilly Money. Our guest today is Sophie Ryan, CEO of Sony Foundation Australia. When Sophie Ryan joined Sony in 2010, she was just 27 and one of Australia's youngest CEOs. She then went on to win the Young Leaders Award at the Australian Financial Review and Westpac 100 Women of Influence Award in 2013. Prior to this, Sophie worked as a lawyer for Allen's Linkletters and also for the United Nations in both Vienna and Sudan. Sophie also worked for the UN Special Rapporteur for Torture. While a lawyer at Allen's, she set up ToothMob, a program offering free dental services for Indigenous communities, in partnership with the Charlie Perkins Trust, before being approached by the Sony Foundation. Under Sophie's leadership, Sony Foundation has expanded its reach to improve the lives of thousands of young Australians in need. One of the most profound focus areas for Sophie and Sony Foundation has been UCAN, a program that supports 16 to 25-year-olds who are diagnosed with cancer, an age group found to be slipping through the cracks with some of the most alarming survival rates. Sophie, welcome to Tilly Money. Thank you, Maureen. I'm really looking forward to talking to you because from that introduction, you've had some amazing experience that I know that you're going to share with us um, for our listeners um, who love being inspired with by women like yourself who are just making inroads um, into the position of women in business, but also in your case, working in an area like the Sony Foundation, which has its own issues and challenges as well as rewards. I'm sure we can talk about that later. But first up... Let's cast our minds back to Sophie when you were a young girl, say about 12 years of age, and I believe that your family moved to Europe and the Middle East. Your father served there as a volunteer dentist. Is that right? Yeah, he did. Yeah, we did a um, a year overseas. I was one of five children. Mm-hmm. And um, when we moved, my youngest brother was only six weeks old. <laughs> now True. being a mum of little kids, I realise how... Difficult that would have been at the time. Um, but, yeah, it's part of the time when we are overseas, my dad did um, spend time in Israel um, as a volunteer dentist there and it was an incredibly remarkable program in which, um, you know, young people that really needed desperate um, dental assistance um, were able to go to this clinic in which they had volunteers from all around the world mm. uh, and they were provided with complete free of charge um, dental care. And a lot of these Young people um, were at that age of trying to get a job um, or, or, you know, leaving school and going to uni um, or other studies and and just couldn't afford um, dental care and it wasn't seen as a priority, Mm. uh, you know, so many other essential things. But 
the confidence that they may have lacked by having, um, you know, um, terrible teeth or that the pain that they may have been in from chronic pain from their teeth. Uh, it was amazing to see the impact that this had on um, on young people. So you were a 12-year-old. You were just entering high school, were you? Yes. And, yep. and yeah, how, how did that affect you as a young person? Did you go to a, like a, a United Nations type of school or an American school there? And tell us about that. No, we're actually homeschooled. Oh, okay. Um, so my mum didn't know that. Yeah, because mm. it was for a year, we were able to, I suppose, in primary school, you're lucky that um, a lot of it we could do from home. Mm. So I remember the school was great. They packed up all of our books and, um, yeah, we did a year of schooling from home and a lot, I remember a lot of history lessons and things like that from where we were travelling um, or where we were staying. Mm. But, um, yeah, I, I think as, as a 12-year-old living in Australia, um, you get very, um, you know, you can get very used to just seeing your own worlds. Um, so it was a pretty powerful impact for us to to see a whole other side of life mm. at such a young age. Mm, I'm sure that some of the work that you did later on, you you must have had a kind of a global perspective on life, did you, from that experience at such a young yeah, age? Yeah, I think that, so. Mm. Yeah, I think I just always had that in, um, desire to live abroad mm. you know and, and study and travel abroad mm. uh, and perhaps that was yeah perhaps that was from that young young exposure mm. so after that year you came back to Australia went yes. back into high school that's right yeah okay. started high school and mm-hmm. then after you finished um year 12 tell us about that that kind of journey what happened after that yeah, so I finished school in um, Canberra mm-hmm. and then I um, applied to study law. Mm-hmm. Um, much like I suppose lots of other legal students, I didn't know what else to do. Um, so I enrolled in um, law at ANU in Canberra and um, initially I, I spent the first year at ANU and I, to be honest, initially I was actually desperate to try and go to another uni after that, I, I think. Um, you know, I was very keen to live in another city to that mm. that I'd been raised in. But um, anyhow, that wasn't to be and I stayed at um, ANU, but I was very fortunate to be able to spend a year of that um, degree in Vienna. Mm. They, the ANU has an amazing exchange program. And so you could do a, um, you know, my kind of penultimate year as um, a law student, I was able to do uh, international law at the University of Vienna, um, mm, and that was experience. an incredible experience. Mm. In it a was, beautiful yeah. city. Mm. Oh, such a beautiful city. Mm. Yeah, it was. A, and to be able to live in a city like that, I ended up spending um, many more years than I initially intended there. But, yeah, it was a, it was a really special experience. Mm. So did you finish your law degree then back at ANU? Yeah, I came back and did my honours year um, mm-hmm. at ANU. Uh, and then I went on to get a job at Allen's Linklaters, uh-huh. uh, one of the corporate law firms in yep. Sydney. Um, and I worked there for a few years. And fortunately, um, one of my um, experiences when I was in Vienna was that I, I did um, <clears throat> get taught by Manfred Novak, who was the UN Special okay. Rapture for Torture. And so I went, um, he offered me a research assistant position. Mm. Um, so I went back to Vienna and I worked with him. And he had an amazing um, role in that he had a global mandate. He could travel anywhere in the world to investigate um, torture mm. and um, and write a, write a, um, reports about it, and ultimately try and work with the country to improve um, improve the circumstances in which he saw the torture, and if not, then report it to Human Rights Council. Mm. So I worked with him, which was um, yeah, a fairly sobering um, and confronting experience. 
And then I also um, from there was able to get a job with the UN um, headquarters, so in um, UN Office of Drugs and Crime in, in Vienna, and I stayed on and worked there. Okay, amazing. Now, that experience working for the UN must have been incredibly an eye-opening one. What were some of the key takeaways that you gained from your time there? Um, yeah, it was, it was, I mean, it was an amazing experience. And I think at the time I probably didn't fully appreciate how lucky I was to mm. have that experience. Um, you were surrounded by so many different um, cultures, which um, I really missed, to be honest. I found that such an interesting um, working experience that there are so many different approaches, even to the way a meeting's run or the, the, the time that a meeting, you know, commences to down to, you know, cultural beliefs and, and how um, how different cultures um, interact. Um, but I also found it quite, um, uh, in some ways, quite depressing, to be honest. I worked um, in both in Vienna, but I also worked um, and was posted to Sudan, um, to South Sudan, mm. and um, I worked there in prison reform. And I learned a lot in a very short amount of time on my first trip there um, about how much you have to be, you know, I mean, it sounds so obvious when you say it out loud, but the importance of not, um, I guess, inflicting um, your values or beliefs onto others without first understanding um, all the context and the, and the situation, um, all the reasons that people have come to, you know, come to certain views. Mm. Um, and the other thing was just the challenge. I mean, I, the UN is, is such a big bureaucratic organisation, but the complex challenges that they have to face, um, you know, just in Sudan where uh, we worked with both Sudanese people but also um, a whole host of different, mm. um, you know, different people from all around the country and just even the pay scale that, you know, what a dollar was worth to me was so much more than a dollar, say, for my Nigerian counterpart, but should mm. we all be paid differently based on how much the money means in mm. each person's country? Um, you know, in Sudan, I remember the that I was working with these Canadian consultants who were you know, very, you know, brilliant and, and impressive people, but they were very much um, critical of the overcrowding that was happening in the prisons and the different circumstances. And, and it was um, Sudanese prison officials were quite um, offended by some of the reports that were written and the decisions that were being made about um, about their prisons. And, uh, you know, on the outside it did, it looked, you know, there were so many human rights violations, there mm. were so many issues that were happening inside the prison. But equally, overcrowding is an issue because they couldn't, they can't, you know, they're getting sent to prisons because there was a huge backlog in the court systems because the courts were no longer sitting because the um, judges weren't being paid because of all the corruption that was happening. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, the prisons weren't so much a prison but a holding, mm. um, you know, a holding cell for the court system. So to come, you know, to just look at one part of the situation uh, and make, you know, certain decisions or, or calls on, on that just you just realized how complex and, and difficult some um you know some situations could be and and, and many times it was quite overwhelming mm, I can only imagine so from there you made the step to the Sony Foundation not long after yeah I came back to Allen's mm -hmm. um after being overseas for a while and um yeah I just couldn't I couldn't kind of readjust <laughs> back into um, corporate law. I, I mean, I, I had amazing experiences with them. I worked, um, you know, uh, 
in with Pat Dodson. I worked in Broome with um, the Kimberley Land Council through Allens and they were really amazing in their support um, in terms of you know, exposing yourself to other areas of the law. Um, and, yeah, I was actually deciding to go back um, back overseas, back to the UN, mm. and um, I had some conversations with some people. And it's funny, you know, when you look back on life and there's these conversations you have at the time that you think are just, you know, short, mm. quick conversations that have such an impact on the direction of the mm. life that you take. Um, anyhow, one of those conversations led to a com- um, an introduction to Sony Foundation and uh, they said, look, why don't you go and talk to them? They're looking for a CEO. I had no experience in the entertainment industry. I hadn't worked in Australia for not-for-profit. Um, and, I, I, you know, I was open. I went and had the initial meeting with them and they, um, they, they said to me, um, look, we are, I mean, I think what attracted to me was the really close link between the business of the Sony and also then the charity work that they were trying to do. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I saw it as a really... Um, incredible, you know, opportunity to kind of take this power of Sony and then um, work, you know, that into the foundation that was there. So, and it was really at an early stage of the growth of the foundation. So I um, accepted for a year. I said I would do it for a year and then I was going to um, to go back overseas uh, and 10 years later I'm still there. Still there. So, Sophie, what year are we talking about? So that was back in 2010. Okay. And when was there. the foundation set up? So the foundation was set up uh, in 2000 and, sorry, 1998. Okay. And um, it's, so it was set up well before I got there. Tell us a little, little um, bit about the foundation itself. So it's funded by Sony? Yeah, so initially when it was set up, it was a, um, a, a way to bring all the Sony group together to collaborate on one particular cause, uh, you know, some particular causes. Mm-hmm. So when you know, Sony in Australia is many country, uh, companies working um closely but all independent companies so music electronics playstation all those different pictures sony um, arms they came together in 1998 and set up a foundation um, to support young people Uh, and the initial program was about a um, children's camp for uh, disability which we still fund yes that's right we still run that camp Uh, and then when i came and joined they decided that they were going to i guess take it to a next level um, in the early kind of in that um, early years, it was very much a grant-making organisation, so it would receive a lot of grants from different charities mm-hmm. and it would grant funds based on the, the money that was raised through different events and things that the Sony Group were doing. Um, and when I come on board, the I was the second CEO they'd had, so they had one other CEO for um, a few years before me who really started them on that path of um, not just doing grants but really looking at actual issues that were affecting young people and finding how we could be part of the solution mm. um so it really shifted gear we, we you know a, a team was formed um and it's been that kind of um focused the foundation in in not just a grant making organization but really engaged in, in being part of the solution that um i guess is kept me excited and and passionate and and staying staying in that role yeah well you must be if you've been there 10 years that's that's an amazing Mm, amazing amount of time yeah um it does the sony foundation it does a lot of amazing work as we know and in the introduction and while you've been talking as well you know we've talked about the um the holiday camps you know they're involved in the um youth off the street program but for today's purposes let's talk about um the let's focus on you can can you take us take us through that? What what is you can um, for anyone who doesn't know? You know what do they do? You know why was it necessary to establish this for that younger age group in particular? 
Yeah, sure. So, I mean, this, I guess, speaks, this program in particular speaks to that point that I was just saying around really being part of the solution. So, UCAN is a Sony Foundation um, uh, program. Uh, and basically, there was a Senate inquiry report back in um, 2008 which was looking at cancer more broadly in Australia. But one of the key findings out of this report was a alarming gap in care for our 16 to 25-year-olds. Mm. So what the report found was that we have these wonderful paediatric hospitals uh, in Australia and, you know, we would know them well in each of the states, you know, for example, in South Wales, fabulous Sydney kids, um, both at Westmead and Randwick, that are centres of excellence. They're there's, they've got specialists there. They've also got specialist care for young people. So a lot of charities... Uh, the Ronald McDonald House, Starlight, all those wonderful charities also um, have a really key role in the in the children's um, in the children's hospitals. What happens though when you turn sixteen is all of a sudden you're no longer treated as a child but as an adult, and you mm. transfer into the adult health system. And we know that at sixteen, seventeen, you're not an adult, um, but yet there isn't that. Um, I guess, adolescent healthcare system set up. And this was an issue that wasn't just isolated to Australia. It's the same issue in the UK, um, same issue in the US, slightly different ages. In some cases, they do let the kids' hospitals go up to 18. But that transition out of the paediatric system to the adult system, across across the world, they have we have this, um, this market um, gap in care. And what this was having was really detrimental impacts on survival rates, uh, and also post care in terms of um, compliance. Oh, sorry, during care in terms of compliance rates. So really um, concerning um, results around compliance of young people with their chemotherapy treatment or their their various cancer treatments. And then post care, a lot of issues that were arising um, post cancer because there weren't, I guess, those services and the support that would have been provided had they been in the children's system. So Sony took that issue um, and said, right, we're going to make this a big focus of ours. And we uh, did a partnership at the time with the federal government and said, well, one of the findings out of the the inquiry report was the need for specialised youth cancer centres. And these were to be built in adult hospitals. And now to be a bit of a hub for the hospital, they were to be a place where specialists would then treat from, but also where they'd bring young people together. Um, and that was a really key part about it, that young people would be treated alongside other young people um, and not alongside, say, a 70 or 80-year-old in the hospital. So we um, said that we would raise the funds to build the youth cancer centres and then work with government to get youth cancer specialists um, funded um, in each of the states. So since that time, we've now got um, a centre in Perth, Melbourne, Brisbane and Sydney. And we've got a further one um, soon that's under construction at the moment that's to be um, uh, open in the next couple of months in Sydney. And each of those centres cost around $1.5 to $2 million. Um, so we've been able to raise the funds to build those. Um, and now we're also working in a, in a range of different areas um, as a kind of expansion of those youth cancer centres to support young people um, in areas that, that just weren't getting the funding. Mm, amazing work you're doing, Sophie. And let's for a moment, and I'd like to hear more about that, but let's for a moment, let's concentrate on Sophie Ryan because, you know, we've mm. we've heard a little bit about the work that you did with the UN, you know, and the work that you were doing um, with the Sudanese. You know, you've had broad experience and now you're decade with the Sony Foundation. It's broad. It's an amazing experience that anyone would be um, inspired by. But what about you? You know, who were your mentors along the way? Who were people you admired or you turned to? Because 
a lot of the work that you're doing as well, it's there's a lot of emotional energy that would go into your work, I would imagine. So who did you look to for guidance and for inspiration? Uh, I think I've, I mean, I, to be honest, I've never had official, um, I guess, mentor uh, role or people in my life, but I've had um, throughout my time in each of my jobs, I've had really um, generous people, I think, with their time that have been open to having conversations um, with me. I think back to um, uh, one of the senior leaders at Allen's when I was deciding whether or not I should go to the UN in the first place, you know, and I was young, new lawyer in a big flash law firm and I thought, gosh, I can't go on and do it, um, go to the UN for, you know, at that time it was only going to go for a year. I may lose my career here mm. and this is really important. And, and I just remember one pill of advice that she said to me, um, Nicole McKenna was the woman there, and she said, okay, that, you know, I can't tell you what to do, but when you're looking at the different decisions you're trying to make, what's one, what, what experience do you think you'll, um, you'll look back on and want to tell your grandchildren about? And, you know, when you have a, a question like that, I think, okay, another year here or going and having this experience, you know, the decision mm. was made um, mm. yes. made for me. It's a nice um, piece of advice. Yeah, well, mm. and, and so the little pieces of advice like that that, that haven't come so much from official mentors but people that I, I looked up to and that I respected um, but also who I, I could be really honest with about, you know, different decisions that I was trying to make. And, and it was often just those little kind of questions back at you to be honest mm. um that have really helped um there's a wonderful man um joe fisher who's an amazing um uh you know thinker who, who advises a lot of big corporates who's also been incredibly generous um to me mm. and i've been able to to meet with him um over the years every time that i've um had a big decision to make or or kind of a new chapter um and he's been really supportive in um you know in often it's it's someone who has the ability to listen and ask you the questions back mm. and you then almost reframe it in your own mind. Um, I think back to when I was having my first child and I was um, working at Sony and I had no idea how to navigate um, bringing on a um, you know, maternity replacement and, and what my role, how I would kind of, if I would have a role when I came back and, you know, the advice and the help that he gave me in, you know, when you're leading a team and you've got to kind of think about how to transition in and out of a, a role and, and not knowing what it was going to be like to be a mum for the first time, you know, the support and the help that he gave me to set the system up that now, you know, being a mum of three children and, and still having this fabulous um, team support and and, um, and role as both a mum and um, still a CEO, you know, that that was invaluable um, advice and help that he gave me. Mm, well, let's talk about that for a minute because we know that you've obviously got the gene be, um, to juggle things because your mum must have been a brave person to take five children to the Middle yes. East, you know, for, you know, when your um, father was, you know, doing the volunteer work. I presume it was your dad who was the dentist. Um, yes, that's right. Yeah, yes. and uh, so, you know, you had a precedent there and probably had some of those genes of your mum as well. So how do you do all the juggling now, Sophie? We've got three kids. You've got obviously a very important um, role that you play as a CEO of the Sony Foundation. Tell us about the juggling. Um, it's absolutely a juggle <laughs> and um, I think sometimes it does feel like it's the juggle's too difficult um, uh, but look I have um, yeah I have three children that are now under four mm. um, and coupled with that we actually now live outside of Sydney as my husband's a large animal vet so um, just before COVID I was already embracing the 
remote, um, you know, the, tra- the flying back in and uh-huh. out to work every mm. week. So, uh, you know, in some ways the, the acceptance and the, the new, mm. um, new way of working now, uh, the way that you can dial into so many more meetings has been fabulous um, for me. Uh, I think in terms of the juggler, I'm, um, one thing that I am is quite, um, I guess, you know, obviously I try and be very organised. But the other thing is it's, it's very routine in that I have really, um, you know, clear times that I, I try to get, um, you know, try to be really efficient in getting things done. I think now more than ever, um, you know, in a workplace, you become incredibly efficient because time is of the essence. Um, And um, I think as well, I've been, you know, really well supported by Sony. One of the things that having been in a job for a long period of time is you get you know, a key part of anyone's role, I think, is relationships Very true. and the network that you form. Uh, and that doesn't, you know, and I think that's one of the things that when you, when I first stepped away um, for a period of time to, you know, um, have my first little boy, Charlie, you do kind of panic that people are going to forget you or that you're <laughs> mm. not going to have these mm. networks. And for you, it feels like a really long time. But, you know, it's, it's not uncommon that lots of people have, mm. <laughs> have had experiences similar to them, so, you know, like this, and, and you can step back and you realise that you've actually bring this whole another dimension to your work or this other focus or other um, perspective uh, that's seen as valuable as opposed to I think initially I was really panicked that oh, I'm stepping away from um, from my career briefly and, and, you know, am I going to lose these contacts or networks? But, um, you know, I, I think that... Um, yeah, you build up good relationships with people and, and people, you know, you build up relationships of trust and they, they know what you're capable of. Mm. Um, and that doesn't stop just because you've stepped away briefly to have a child, but that you can step right back into that. Mm. Um, and I do think it's been quite, um, you know, I really admire people that have been able to have a, a really big career change at the same time as, as you know, that transitioning into a different phase of life mm. um, because I've, I've really... Um, actually really enjoyed having that stability and that I guess um, familiarity of my role and my my fabulous team that have been very understanding you know and um and supportive as well um that's yeah that's that's made a big um I guess that I've really enjoyed um doing and the other thing is that while it's a juggle I think not to have any expectations when you you know when I first um had my first child I didn't I, I thought I would want to continue to work quite soon after but you're never sure and no. it's one of those things you can get lots of advice and talk to lots of people and you can look at lots of different situations um but you just have to trust your own gut instinct mm. and, and do what feels right for yourself mm, that's so true because it's such an unknown experience to have the first one it gets easier with the second you know what yeah. you know you know what you're in for but the first one is such a change yeah. Today's episode is brought to you by our principal partner, Mortgage Choice. For almost 30 years, Mortgage Choice and its national network of mortgage brokers have been helping Australians just like you realise their property ownership goals. They put your best interests as their top priority because they work for you, not lenders. Whether you are looking to buy your first home or investment property or want to refinance an existing home loan to get a better deal, let a Mortgage Choice broker answer all your questions, show you what's available and do the legwork for you. Visit mortgagechoice.com.au or call 13 62 to speak to your local broker today. So 
Sophie, let's just concentrate on this role of being a CEO because more and more women, you know, taking positions in senior leadership, you know, more people, more women probably more aspirational about being a CEO at some stage in their career. From your experience, what are the key skills or key attributes that a good CEO needs? Um, well, I think about the leaders that I am fortunate to work with that are CEOs, um, and I think one of the one of the things that I, I think is really important is being a good decision maker. Um, I definitely think in the early days, my first step into my role. I wasn't, I didn't have that confidence in myself to make decisions. And I think a team, you really look to CEO for those, those decision-making skills to listen to everything that's happening, assess, take on board all the information that needs to be taken about and make really clear decisions that they don't, you know, don't waver from. I think having a really indecisive CEO makes things very difficult for the team. Mm. Um, and I think coming with that decision-making is a really clear vision um, and an ambitious vision. I think it's really inspiring to be able to work for people or work with people that are, um, you know, that have big audacious goals and, and, and big visions and, and that they can kind of steer the ship and, and make you feel like you're part of something bigger and that you, you, know, you have a role to play um, but that there is this, this kind of, um, you know, exciting place which we're all, we're all trying to, um, you know, exciting goals that we're trying to achieve. Mm. Um, I think the other two things are obviously to be a really good listener. I think there's nothing more frustrating than for a team that feels that they've, you know, feel that they've got their own um, piece of advice to give, but um, or you know, pieces of contribution, and, and they don't feel like they're being valued. And you know, any leader knows that the the best way to be able to make a difference or to get the job done is to have really effective people working with you. And mm. if they're not feeling like they're able to make their most um, successful contribution, then you're not going to get the best from your team. Um, but I also, um, another one of my board directors, Damien Eels, I remember him saying to me once, look, are you, I say to people, if I'm giving you, um, you know, feedback, I'm probably not paraphrasing this correctly, but, you know, when I'm giving feedback or, or really investing, you, that's because I really see potential and I want you to be the best you can be. And so, I, and, you know, when he was explaining this to me, I'm like, that's a really great piece of advice as well so that when people you know you, some people might be feeling like you're constantly hounding them on something or you you know you're being really difficult and really challenging them saying but don't take that as a defensive criticism that's more because your leader is there really believes that you've got huge potential and they mm. want you to get you know they want you to get ahead and they want you to strive to that next level and I thought mm. that was you know that's really great as well where you can um you can have people that um will kind of you know invest in you and and to see that as a, a positive thing as opposed to feeling like you you know you're really being challenged or pushed mm. because leadership really particularly at the top it's quite selfless um what you're really doing is you're wanting to encourage others as you said to be the best that they can be so good leaders bring on other leaders is that is that what you've seen yeah absolutely and it can be lonely too I think mm. um one thing that as a CEO, you've you've got to take, you've got to um, make sure your, your staff and your team are all accountable for the decisions they make. But ultimately, whatever the decision happens or whatever the action is that comes out of your team, you're the one that's responsible and you have to take, um, you know, you have to take full accountability for whatever happens. And I think that's a really important thing that your team feel as well is that um, no matter what happens, that you're the one that will really, um, I guess, take that responsibility on board. So if you push your team and you, know, you really try and get them to, to act outside the, 
the limits and, and trying new and creative and, and different things that if it doesn't work out that it's not all going to fall on that team that ultimately it's the you know if it's the ceo's call it's it's that um that feeling that you you know you will take responsibility and accountability mm. as well i think the old phrase was the buck stops with with you yeah that's right that's right how, how did, did you have to learn you know when you said that you found decision making a bit tough did you have to learn to take risks that maybe you'd make a wrong decision or not too good a decision before you got the confidence to to just make decisions as a matter of course yeah I did I think um you know I, I think back to those really early days but I wasn't um you know I had to learn a lot on the job and so sometimes if you had someone who came to you who was an ex- more experienced in a particular area had more knowledge than you did and they would ask you for a decision on something and you think oh but I actually think you mo know more about this particular subject matter than I do but yet I'm the one that you're asking for my decision but you know equally they're looking to you saying I need it I need some you know you're my boss you need to tell me what to do here um and I think in you know again it, it, sometimes it's about realizing that you can't be the the subject expert on everything but what you do have as a leader is that overview of everything that's going on so you have that lens that can kind of look across the whole landscape and and realize how whatever it was that the subject may make a decision on is going to fit in with that overall plan or impact that overall um, goal that you're trying to achieve and I think um, yeah so I think it was trying to not sometimes feel like you're out of your depth in making decisions but realize kind of what your role is in the decision-making process mm-hmm. and why you've got, you know, why you're the one that is making these decisions um, and the importance of, of taking on board everything that you know to make sure you're, you're driving the ship the right way. Mm, so true. Now, Sophie, this is um, Tilly Money and it is a program about we're trying to um, lift the financial understanding of money um, for women that would lead then to greater independence. So I have to, I just have to ask you some questions about money. Okay, yeah. so so yeah. straight up, I'm going to say, do you have any personal money rituals that you follow? What's your awareness of money like? Was it something that you've learned or you've just been good at managing money as from a kid and you still are? Tell us about that. Well, actually, my favourite subject at school, which is ironic now, was maths. I always just hmm. loved um, maths. Because usually yeah. lawyers aren't all that good at maths. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm a lawyer yeah, myself, so I say that, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, so I always have loved maths. Um, maths and I think I've always had a fairly responsible mm-hmm. um, attitude to money you know I, I worked as a young kid going through uni and things like that always had part-time jobs so I've always I guess um, seen the importance in saving and the freedom that comes with that you know I had great um, experiences traveling and, and things like that that I was able to work for um, and I think in those early days you get that really close connection don't you as a young person of if you work hard and you save you can have these great benefits because mm, you can true. go on these great holidays and if you don't do that you can so I think that correlation you know I, I picked that up pretty quickly uh in the early days um and definitely now with my job I mean financial management is a huge part of what we do mm, um yeah you know we've had 12 months um or over 12 months now with COVID where we haven't been able to have a major fundraising event mm. which is a massive impact for our bottom line yeah, but thankfully mm. We were in a really strong financial position where we were able to um, continue to support all our programs. We didn't have to stop any, you know, got a $1.8 million capital build happening with the Youth Cancer Centre underway Mm. at the moment. None of that has had to be delayed because we've been able to meet all of our um, funding, um, you know, um, funding dates and things like that. So 
I um you know I see the importance of of good financial management um I think I've always yeah I have always been um fairly aware of the importance of of being um across um your own personal finances I think you know to be honest with me one thing is probably that you can get caught up in doing so much um stuff with work and everything else that you can sometimes forget to look after your own personal finances um you know and make sure you're always being smart about that um so that's probably one area that I, I try not to forget about um, well, if we can you know. ever help you there so if you just just log into Tilly Money because that's what we're good at <laughs> so, so oh, good to know. yeah you will always be supportive of you there but um what do you reckon was your best personal investment you know it could be time it could be something you know that you took up a course or you invested you know some money in some kind of education program for yourself looking back what do you reckon was the smartest decision you ever made Probably the, the if I think of like what I've paid for that has helped me grow, I mean, I think going overseas and studying overseas and then continue to work overseas, I mean, financially that would have been not an ideal um, situation. Um, you know, you're having to pay a lot more to study abroad, um, but I was able to get jobs over there um, that were able to support myself. And so that in terms of, um, you know, I guess input out, in and out, that was, um, you know, kind of, yeah, it's been incredible, um, mm. the experience and, and what that led to. So mm. I think that's probably my best personal investment. I was also fortunate to go and study at Harvard for a leadership mm. course um, uh, a few years ago now. And that was an intensive program. Um, but, again, that was, a you know, at the time it seemed like a, you know, a big investment. Um, but the experience and the lessons that I learned and the tools and things that I learned, not, you know, both in work but also personally, mm. um, were, it was it was so valuable and I, mm. I still find myself reverting back to the things that I learned in that. Yeah, it's all about invest, investing um, in you, isn't it? It's At the time it, it seems like money and money and time you think you could use elsewhere but as you said you reflect on how good it was for you. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Now finally, unfortunately, I'm going to ask you to think back. You don't have to think back too many years because you're still, still so young but um, but – if you could go back to the time when you were about 21, so maybe it was around the time when you were in Vienna and you had an opportunity to sit down with this 21-year-old Sophie um, Ryan and you wanted to tell her a few things that maybe might affect her uh -huh. life. We always say if she'd listen because we know as women that we often don't listen um, to good advice. But, but let's say she will. What do you think you'd say to her from what you've learned about life in this career that you've had? I mean, I'm trying to think back to my 21-year-old self. I don't think I was an overly um, anxious child in that I, I, I didn't angst about big decisions back at 21 because um, I think sometimes you hear about these decisions and people say, oh, you know, tell them not to worry about this, not to worry about mm. that. But I actually think at 21 I, I wasn't that worried about, mm. <laughs> about, about things. Mm. I, did, um, I did grapple for a while there. Um, you know, I can still remember it when I was, I'd become a lawyer and we went on a tour of the Sydney um, Children's Hospital and, of course, I met these incredible doctors who were saving these lives and it sounds very cliche, but at the time I thought, what am I doing? I And I, I went and sat um, the exam to get into medicine and I, I got in and I, I grappled, I, you know, I spent a lot of days and nights worrying about I've made the wrong choice, do I go and, you know, go and start again and, and, and try and study um medicine I'm thinking I'm a, I'm a woman I want to have a family as well how am I you know am I going to be finishing university at the same time as trying to have children and, you know I remember thinking about that a lot um, and so I suppose 
and, and I think now back to it thinking, well, I was really looking for that career where I, you know, I felt like I was challenged both professionally, but I also felt that I had that um, ability to to give back in some way or that I had a, you know, probably a strong social conscience that I was, you know, and so the easier answer is just, well, if you go and study medicine and then become a doctor, you always feel good about what you're doing, mm. um, which, you know, is really one-dimensional way of looking at it. So I think if I was to look back then, I'd say, well, you know, don't panic that, you know, if you follow what you you, you believe in and, and you trust what you feel in your gut, that you'll find your own path um, and that you, you know, don't, don't make these, um, you know, don't look at everyone else, I guess, and think, oh, well, I best be I'm better off doing something that they're doing because I think that'll give me more fulfilment. But I think if you just follow your own individual path and stay true to what you feel is right for you, um, then you can't, you know, you won't go wrong and you, and you won't have regrets and, and you won't miss out on opportunities that you, you, um, you know, you really should take. That's really such a strong message, Sophie, that those words you just said, you'll find your own path. And that's so true. And it sounds like you've found yours and you're giving back in spades. And we'd like to help you in any way we can at Tilly Money and certainly love to talk to you again. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Maureen. Lovely to be here. Your host this week was Maureen Jordan. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. To keep up to date with all of our content, follow us on Instagram at tilly.money. Thanks to Ixon for our intro music.